0: Good morning, welcome to Grace, if y'all will stand with us, let's sing out together, Um, we get to remind ourselves that our strength comes from God and not from ourselves, Um, so let's sing out as a church and sing that together.
1: bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the famous one, the amazing one. And Lord, we come to you with all the burdens of this world and we are broken and we have failed and we are not worthy of you. Lord, we know that we've fallen short of your glory and yet you're here with us. Jesus, you came to us and you died for us and you thought of each one of us on the cross. And for that, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice, which allows us to restore a relationship with you. We would ask that you watch over this church, help us to enjoy our time of fellowship together today and to perform the mission with which you have tasked us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Mm
2: Start to stray Start to slip away Rob your love Together, wonderful to me, King of all days, oh so high.
0: we thank you for this time, Lord, that we could join together as your people to worship you, God. Lord, we pray that you will, God, reveal more of yourself to us, God, help us to understand more of who you are, God, and to take hold of your your beauty and your justice, God. Lord, I pray that uh, you will help us to take this time to, to hear your word, God. We pray that you will fill us with it, with your truth, so that we can pour, be poured out for others. That's your name. We pray. Amen.
3: Good morning again. Good morning. If you'll open up your Bibles to. Hebrews, we are continuing a series in the book of Hebrews that we've called A Better Savior. If you don't have a Bible, we have some under the chairs, and you can use one of those, and we're on page 1002 in those Bibles. As we've looked at this idea of Jesus being a better Savior, what we've seen in Hebrews is we've got a guy that's basically interpreting the whole Old Testament for us as he writes Hebrews to us. He's taking all these great things and all these great truths that we've seen in the Old Testament and taking them and showing them how they point to Jesus and how these are great things, but they have a fuller and greater fulfillment in Jesus himself. We saw last week Moses and that Jesus is a better Moses. And just as Moses brought God's people and formed God's people and and built a house for God and brought them out of slavery and adopted them as sons, we see that Jesus gives us a better ex- exodus, a better deliverance, and he brings us out of our slavery to sin and death. This week, what we're going to look at is that Jesus provides for us a better rest. We'll call this a better rest this week. And Jesus, in some ways, is being compared to Joshua, who followed Moses and led the people into the promised land Moses brought them out of slavery formed them gave them the law and then Joshua his assistant was the one that brought them in to the promised land and what is usually referred to in the Old Testament as God's rest in the promised land so read with me if you will Uh, we'll start in chapter 4 verse 1 and you're still praying for my voice right still okay good just checking all right He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, calling it today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not Lord, I pray that we would would have the Holy Spirit open our hearts and our ears and our minds so that we would listen, that we would be united to your people by faith, that we would not just hear the good news, but we would trust in the good news, that today we would hear our heart, hear your voice, and not harden our hearts. Help us to trust. Help us to have open hearts. Help us to have trusting hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just remembering, too, an announcement that I was supposed to make earlier. Sorry. Totally off track now. But uh, we had a funeral. The Sobios family uh, is with us, and they, they lost their son. We had the funeral yesterday, and uh, his fiance lost her wedding ring. So if any of you see a gold band with three stones, if you could uh, let us know, uh, contact us. This is a good day to look for it because a lot of people are going to be staying afterwards in the parking lot, you know, at the party and everything. So if you see one outside or in here, please let us know about that. <clears throat> um, but back to back to Hebrews, I wanted to share with you just an experience that that I'd had of of needing rest. Um, probably a lot of you have had experiences like this. You've needed rest. You've been in in these times when you've been really uh, burdened, really worn out, really tired. Um, and I wanted to share time with you when we had been driving on a long trip, Uh, it was late at night, we were coming back uh, in our minivan, coming down the highway, I was driving, my kids were asleep in the back, they'd probably been asleep for hours, my wife had just fallen asleep, Uh, and so she's snoozing, and I'm feeling pretty sleepy myself. And I accidentally waked my wife up, because as I was driving, I started doing this, I started stomping my feet, because I have this this thing called restless leg syndrome, have y'all ever heard of restless leg syndrome? Yeah, some of you probably suffer with it, right? And then those of you that don't suffer with it just think it's, it's idiotic and, and bizarre. Um, but it really is, it is real. Um, I, I, I've read about it and I don't really know what it is. I think maybe it's a circulation problem. I have varicose veins too, so I think maybe it's circulation related. Started running to try to improve that, but I still still have problems with it. But basically what happens is your legs, they just start tickling when you're tired. Or at least this is how it's expressed in in my body. when I get sleepy, when I'm tired, especially on long road trips, I guess just sitting still and, you know, I'm not getting good circulation there. Sitting still, I'm kind of sleepy. I just feel like there's like spiders crawling up and down my legs and pinpricks and they're just tingling and my feet tickle and uh, I just have to stomp my feet because it's just the bottom of my feet are just tickling and making me insane. It's driving me crazy. You know, so sometimes I startle my wife awake. Usually she just thinks it's funny right? Usually she just laughs at me. She'll hear me doing it and she'll just kind of start doing it herself to kind of make fun of me. <laughs> Thinks I'm like a, you know, a counting horse or something. Um, but I think in those moments, I, I know I feel at the core of my soul, I, I want rest, right? I'm starved for rest. I know really the only thing that I can do to make that feeling go away is to get out of the car and lay like this, you know, I can't sit with something under my legs. I've got to lay down and go to sleep. And that is the only thing that will bring me real rest. And I know you've probably been in situations like that when you're tired and when you, when you know what you need, but you can't get it, right? When you know that thing you need to, to give you rest, but you're not there yet. Maybe you haven't arrived to your destination yet. Maybe you haven't gotten to that place where you can sleep. Maybe you're working on a long project and you know you're going to have to put in extra hours for for weeks and months maybe you're in a long deployment and you're not getting any sabbath at all. I think many of us have been in those places where we're just not getting the rest, we're not getting the pause, we're not getting the refreshment we need and we know what it is to need that. And I think in this text he's blowing it up even even bigger than just the need for sleep or the need for a weekly sabbath rest. He's taking it even bigger talking about that broader need that we all have as being a part of this World, this creation that is groaning. We see that in, in Romans 8, right? The creation is longing and groaning to be redeemed and to work the way that it's supposed to work. So, as you think about this, as you think about what this rest is like, I want you to remember that the author here is saying that Jesus is the only way you can really find that rest. He's the only true solution. The better rest is not necessarily another vacation. All the vacations are good. I mean, in the Old Testament, you see God told his people, you need to have vacations and you need to have festivals and you take a week off every, you need to take a day off every week and a week off several times throughout the year. I mean, God instituted that. Tangible rest, physical rest is good and our bodies are made for that. And I'd say that's one of the symptoms that you don't have spiritual rest. If you don't allow yourself to rest physically, that's a pretty good indicator that you have some kind of problem with your spiritual rest. Now, understandably, sometimes, as the Old Testament says, the ox is in the ditch and you just got to get it out, right? But if you prolong and prolong and prolong and continue to tell yourself that you're too important to rest or you've got to keep the world spinning, you can't trust God to do that, so you can't, you can't take a break, that there's something spiritually disconnected there and you need to enter into the true rest so that you can enjoy physical rest as well. Well, let's open up and see what he says. In the, in the first two verses, he starts off by telling us that we need to actually fear missing his rest, that there should be a healthy fear. Now, a lot of evangelical churches, and we, we tend to be kind of like this, right, as a church, a church that's a friendly, welcoming place, a, a church that tries not to be um, kind of the old-school, hardcore fundamentalist that's, that's always you know, being tough and angry and scaring people. And so, you know, I can appreciate that. I I don't want to, I don't want to scare people unnecessarily, but the, the author here is telling us that there is something that we should be afraid of, that there is a very real thing that we should fear here. He says that we should fear missing out on this rest and that it's healthy and that it's right to be afraid of this. He says in verse one, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He's saying here that the good news, the gospel, the truth, the good news of who God is, his grace was preached. It was preached to them just like it was preached to us. And this is an important thing to understand, right? Because people often look at the Old Testament and they see the rules and they see the laws and they think, sometimes people mistakenly say, well, God saved people by works in the Old Testament or by the laws or by all these intricate, you know, things that he told people to follow. They misunderstand that all those rules were to point us to God's holiness, to his righteousness. They were to help us to understand his, his standards, those sacrifices those sacrifices in themselves didn't save us. What those sacrifices did was, I've said this before, they're like a giant flannel graph to, to paint the picture that we need a sacrifice, that we need a substitute to take our place. All of these things in the Old Testament were pointing us to see our need for Jesus. And so the Old Testament doesn't have some, some other system of salvation. It says they had the good news just like we get the good news people were saved in the Old Testament by trusting in this good news, just like we need to trust in this good news as well. He says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We should be, we should be very much afraid that we might miss out on this. He says, good news came to, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so what he's here, saying here is that you can be a part of the people of God. We saw this last week with Moses bringing people out of slavery, forming this people. So there are people that were a part of a group, right? It's like they, they showed up. They were, they were in the church, and they were hearing the message, and they were listening, but they weren't really united to the group by faith. They weren't really in, right? And we talked about that last week, and he's reiterating that again this week. You can, you can be here but not really be in. You, you can show up, but not really trust, not really have faith. And again, it's, it's not by works, it's by faith. It's trusting in God and what he does. But you can show up and think, I'm in because I showed up, right? Or I'm in because I gave, or I'm in because I served, or I'm in because I went to the class. And he's saying, no, you're, you're in by faith. You're only united to the people of God by faith, by believing the message. And so he starts off saying, we should be afraid. We should have a healthy fear. It's not wrong to be afraid if it's, if it's a healthy fear, right? If it's something really bad that can kill you, and that's one of the basics of being a parent, right? You don't want to terrify your kids, but you want to teach them to be afraid of the stuff that can kill them, right? I have a, I have a picture here of someone crossing the street. And uh, one of my favorite preachers is a guy named Matt Chandler in Dallas, Texas. And he talks about, of course, you want to teach your kids to be afraid of crossing the street and that's a healthy fear. You want to teach them when they're real little to go with you, when they're older to look both ways. You want them to have this fear of getting crushed, getting run over in the street. That's a healthy fear, right? Now he says, it's taken too far if your child is, is laying asleep at night saying, the road is outside, it's right outside my window, you know, and, and they're freaking out about it all the time. That would be taking it too far. That would be an unhealthy fear. Of the street, But he's saying you want him to have that healthy fear. And that's the same thing the author is trying to communicate to us. That you should have an informed, healthy fear of missing out on entering in to God's rest, of really being united to his people by faith, by trusting in him and, and who he is and what he's, he's done for us. So the first thing he wants us to know is that we should, we should have that healthy fear. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul says it this way. He says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith, whether or not Christ Jesus is really in you. That's an okay thing to question. It's an okay thing to ask. We all may know people who have this kind of ongoing compulsive fear and doubt whether God can really save them, whether God can really forgive them. And I would say you shouldn't doubt God's ability, his power, or his graciousness to save you. But you should question if you actually trust him have I, have you actually trusted him for your salvation? Have you actually entrusted your life to him? Have you asked him to forgive you for your sins? And have you asked him to give you his perfect righteousness? It's a healthy fear to fear missing out on entering into his rest. The next thing I want us to look at is what is this rest? Let's try to make some sense of it. The, The author here basically interprets the Old Testament for us, does kind of a systematic theology of God's rest and strings together some different pieces here, some different things uh, that he explains. I think contextually, uh, the Old Testament people and the Hebrew people that he was speaking mostly to Hebrew people, we think, because it's called the book of Hebrews, right? So he's speaking mostly to Jews. and, And so the kind of the Old Testament Hebrew Jewish mindset would be that the rest would be two things. It would either be Sabbath rest, right? The once a week off to worship and to cease from your work. Literally, the word Sabbath means to cease, to rest, to cease your work, okay? So that would be the first meaning of that. And then the other meaning would be entering into the promised land. It's referred to as, as giving the people rest, right? When they had safe borders so they had rest, they didn't have to worry about people attacking them. Or they were in the promised land and it had all this rich abundance so they didn't have to kill themselves trying to farm desert, but they could actually farm good things and have this land flowing with milk and honey. Oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, he talked about entering into this promised land as a place of rest. So I got a picture here of of huge grapes. One of the things that they did when they first went in and spied out the promised land is they brought back these giant grapes, right, that they were enormous and they just talked about how abundant this land was. And again and again, you hear the phrase, it's a land flowing with milk and with honey. It's just rich. It is abundant. And so that's how, for the Old Testament saint, rest is described. And what I want to say is that those things are true. Those things are accurate. And that is rest. That's a starting point, right? You need to sleep at night. If you're not sleeping at night, there's something wrong with you, right? I would even go so far as to say, you need to take a day off every week. I think that's part of the, part of the struggle with guys that deploy. When you, when you deploy for a long time and you're not getting that time off, it starts to affect your chemistry. It, it, it takes you a while to unwind when you get back. It, it can mess up your system and your ability to sleep and your ability to rest. You see the same thing happen in the States where people just continually work and work and work and never take time off, never take a day off. So there's reality there. Those things, that physical rest that we need, sleeping and, and eating right and taking a Sabbath. Those things are important. And there's also uh, the good life that, that we want to enjoy, right? That there are these many promises in the Old Testament of if, if you follow God's laws, there's a basic way that he's wired the universe and things are going to go well with you, right? And that's part of what we teach our children. If you wake up early and you work hard and you do things right and you're honest, in general, things are going to go well with you. But the author here is going to point out that there's something more. There's something more than just those understandings of God's rest. There's more to it. Read with me in in verse 3. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest. So we can enter that rest now by believing. As he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day or the Sabbath day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So what he's explaining is he's saying he was telling them they shall not enter my rest. I'll not allow them to enter my rest. But the author is, is doing a little detective work with the text. He's saying, but what does God mean when he says they can't enter my rest? Because the Bible tells us in Genesis that God started his rest on the seventh day. So shouldn't we all be in God's rest now? So there's a sense in which God has entered his rest. He is resting, right? He created the world and it was humming and he said, it, it is good, right? If, if you're a mechanic or you make things, there's a sense in which when you build or create or fix something, then even as it's working, it's at rest or you're at rest because it's working the way it's supposed to work. And so the author's helping us understand this picture here of God entering that rest. Again, in this passage, he said, He said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he points to a certain day, saying, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on says, so, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whomever God, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. So the author, as I said, is building the systematic theology of rest. What he's saying is those people didn't enter God's rest when they rebelled against him. And then the author says, but but wait a minute, God's rest has been going on since the seventh day of creation, right? So there's a sense that God is in his rest now, even as God works to maintain and hold together the universe by the word of his power. Do you remember that? What we read in, in chapter one of Hebrews and in one verse three, it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So there's some sense theologically that God is always at work in providence and holding everything together, right? He sustains us. We breathe because he gives us breath. So there's a sense in which God continues to work in that way but there's another sense that God is at rest, right? That everything is the way it's supposed to be. Another picture of this is in the Lord's prayer. What is that part of the Lord's prayer? It says, uh, pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So we understand that heaven is the place where God is, and that's the place where God is at rest, where his will is done, where all things are right, where things are, are working. And we know what we experience here on earth is this world where we are not at rest, where things do not work the way they're supposed to work, where our jobs are filled with frustration, where our lives are filled with frustration. But the author is still saying there's a sense in which we can enter that rest now. And he says, again, proving from the Old Testament, if it weren't so, David would not have said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So David, we got to kind of reconstruct some history here, right? So thousands of years ago, the Old Testament people are brought out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt with Moses, and then Joshua tries to bring them into the promised land. And some of those people die. They're disobedient. They're rebellious. And God says, you're not going to enter my rest. Well, David, hundreds of years later, King David comes many years later, and he writes this psalm. And as a prophet, he's teaching his people with this psalm for the worship of God. In Psalm 95, he's saying, today, do not harden your hearts the way they did back then in the rebellion. So what he's saying is that that promise still stands. And the author of Hebrews, who writes hundreds of years later after David in the first century, writing to those first century Christians says, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. The promise of rest still stands, and and I'm saying now, and we're hearing the text speak to us again today, saying today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We can't push this off as as ancient history. As we said before, there should be a healthy fear that, that we should listen to his voice if he's speaking to us. We can't harden our hearts anymore, but we can enter his rest now. This perfect rest where things work as they should somehow we can enter into this relationship with him even now let's read verse 8 and 9 again for if joshua had given them rest god would not have spoken of another day later on so god spoke again later on through david later on so then there remains a sabbath rest for the people of god for whoever has entered god's rest has also rested from his works just as god did from his This is uh, pointing to this this doctrine that we call justification by faith. You see, what happens is is many of us, we try to work to justify ourselves, to make ourselves right. We try to cover ourselves with our hobbies or with our jobs or with our relationships. and, And we struggle and we strive and we work and we're not really resting in God and who He is and what He has done and what He's created and what He says is good. But we, like Adam and Eve, have rebelled and said, we'd rather do life on our own. We'd rather do it our way. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own saviors. And so in that reality, we're not entering into His rest. But the New Testament promises, Hebrews promises, Jesus promises that today, if you trust in Him, you can enter that rest right now. Now, we know there's a sense in which we're still frustrated, and the world is still broken, and we still have pain, but there's a sense and a way in which we can move through that pain and through that brokenness at rest. So that even, even while we work, even as we go through difficult times, even as we are in pain, we can still be at rest. We can still have a sense of joy that all things are right with God and we look forward to this day when all things will be complete. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 describes this working together of of this theology that we rest from our works but we still work, right? Because we're not supposed to just quit. When we talk about entering God's rest, we don't mean the eternal hammock, right? I mean, having a hammock is good but you should limit hammock time to nighttime and Sundays, right? You can't be in the hammock every day. You've got work to do, so it's good. It's good to have the hammock. It's good to go to the hammock, but you still got to work. And and so, how do we how do we work that out? How do we enter God's rest now, knowing that we're not in heaven yet? In Ephesians two eight through ten, it says, "For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You have to know that it's not something that you have done. It is the gift of God. It's something that God gives to you freely." not a result of work so that no one may boast. You see, if we did it ourselves, we could boast in ourselves, but God does it. And and we find the most joy when we boast in him, when we find him to be our glory, when we find him to be our answer. And that's the way we were designed to work, dependent on him. We work best that way. It's not because God is arbitrary or God is holding out on us. It's because God is actually good. And if God is all good, then of course we want to be connected to him. We want to be in him. We want to live in dependence on him. It's the gift of God, not a result of work. So no one can boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we rest from our works. We're, we're justified by him. We're saved by him, by his gift, by his grace. And as we know that, as we rest in that truth, then we're able to work from a different motivation. We're able to work from a motivation of enjoying the work that God has given us to do. Feeling his pleasure in whatever calling he puts on you. You're not doing the work to earn anyone's approval. You're not doing the work to live up to some expectations of of some leader or parent in your life. You're not doing the work to please some other person. You're doing the work because God has given you the work to do because he's already pleased and satisfied with you through Jesus Christ and the gospel by giving you life. And so you do the work from a completely different motivation. You're able to rest from your own works and do the work that God puts before you. How do you work this out in real life? What, What does this look like in our daily life? I think a really key verse is one that's been very important to me is Philippians 4, 6 through 7 that talks about anxiousness and anxiety. It says, don't be anxious about anything. And what that means is uh, not necessarily don't ever begin to worry because you can't help beginning to worry, right? In the Greek, the present tense always has an ongoing aspect. So any present tense verse, verb you ever read in the New Testament, always think of it in, in your mind as in an ongoing way. It always means this ongoing way. And so it's saying, don't continue to be anxious about anything. Don't remain in that anxiousness. But it says, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It says in the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, doesn't make sense. It transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus So as you begin to worry, as you begin to be anxious, as you begin to feel like I've got to work to solve this, it's saying then talk to God. This is a call to prayer. This is a call to praying without ceasing, right? Constant prayer, constant communication with God, constantly calling on him, making petitions, that's requests, asking him for things, calling on him, connecting with him, calling out to him throughout the day. And it says in a super rational way, in a way that transcends all understanding, he'll guard your hearts, he'll guard your minds in Christ Jesus. You'll be able to enter his rest now. It's a paradox. The world is still broken. You will still get sick and die. You will still struggle. You will still go through pain. You you will still have difficult things in your life. But there's a sense in which we can enter God's rest even now. Philippians 4.13, he continues the thought there in chapter 4 of Philippians. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I've joked with you all before that I used to have a t-shirt when I first became a Christian in high school. that had like all these athletic symbols on it. So the idea was like I can run the 40-yard dash because of Jesus, right? Or, or I can pole vault because of Jesus. And I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he first wrote this verse. When you read the verse, he's really talking in this section about contentment with both having, having much, having wealth, having good things, and having nothing. And he says, God has taught me the secret of contentment, and the secret of contentment is Jesus. That's the way you're able to rest from your works. So in those moments when you feel like you are something big and you've done great work, you're able to rest from your work in Jesus. You're able to do all those things. You're able to actually be content in wealth and in plenty because of Jesus knowing that he gave it to you. It's him, it's not you. And he says, "Also in want, when you, when you don't have enough, when you're hungry, when you're hurting, you can still rest from your work, not thinking, "I've just, I've just got to work harder to fix all this." no, trusting him. And, and he may want you to work harder. Again, don't get me wrong, it's not, it's not the eternal hammock, right? We are to work, we are to be diligent, but we are to do that trusting in him, resting in him, being our true solution. Galatians 2:20 is my last verse, I think that is an applicable one here it says I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? So the old us has died. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, right? Because we're not there yet. We're not in heaven. It's not all perfect yet. The life I live in this body now, this broken body, the sick body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to enter God's rest now is to trust in Him. Yeah, I'm still in this body. Talked about as Paul said. Paul said, "I'd, I'd rather be dead and be perfected and be in heaven and everything be right. But we remain here in this body to do the work that God created us to do. Going back to Ephesians, God has given us work to do. He has you here for a purpose. You are not purposeless. When you look around at all the messages of the world, when you watch TV commercials and you realize, well, I don't have what that commercial says I need, right? Or when you hear things on the radio, I don't have what that song says that I need. You can begin to feel as if you are without purpose. But when you recognize that Jesus has given you life, eternal life, and then he's given you work to do, he's given you purpose to make an impact for you, for him in this world, then you have a purpose Then you have a reason to remain in this body doing the works that he's created for you to do the last thing i want us to look at is the struggle of rest we have a struggle for rest in verse 11 it says let us therefore strive to enter that rest right strive make every effort uh get your stuff together again don't be passive entering god's rest is not passive it's not just letting go and letting god in this kind of abstract i just sit back and do nothing way it's letting go and, and letting God take over in a very active way. You have to struggle, you have to strive, you have to pursue him. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that they fell under, right? Going back to Psalm 95, going back to the Exodus, these people that rebelled, they saw God take care of them, and then they said, but this isn't good enough. We're struggling, God. Today, we don't have the food we want. Today, we don't have the shelter we want, so we don't trust you anymore. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't fall in the same way that they fell. If you don't have the food that you want and the shelter that you want and the the amenities of life that you want today, don't make up in your mind that that means God's not trustworthy. You can trust him. He may be taking you through a difficult time right now. He may be taking you through a desert, through a wilderness. But you can still trust him. Strive to enter that rest and it says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is one of the scariest verses right now. It says, The word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. No creature is hidden from the sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I enjoyed listening to a sermon by Tim Keller about this section recently. And it was interesting. He said about these verses, how horribly threatening they are. Any of you have ever uh, memorized these verses before? I, I memorized these uh, when I was a young Christian. And we go to them as a, just kind of a verse, usually we kind of take out of context, not in a bad way necessarily, but just kind of take it as The word is powerful, right? We need the word. It's important. It's powerful. It's kind of exciting. But really in context, it's it's pretty scary, right? It's kind of of horrifying. It's kind of threatening. Keller says the rest of this passage is about peace and rest, right, and relaxing and entering into this paradise where God is. But this part is about cutting and, and penetrating and laying us bare, exposing us. Revealing our intentions and our thoughts, kind of reading our minds, and and I don't know about you, but that's that's threatening. That's that's pretty scary. And, and Keller says that, that what this is telling us about the gospel is that this is an ordeal that, that you're going to have to go through if you're really going to enter God's rest. That you're gonna have to go through this place of having your very thoughts and intentions revealed. Keller says, you'll never get into deep rest unless you come to grips with the experience of spiritual nakedness. Knowing that you have nothing to cover up with. Knowing that that all the stuff that we do and that we scurry around trying to fix what's wrong and trying to cover our shame and trying to get ourselves to the place that we think we need to be, none of those things are enough to really cover us. None of those things are enough to really protect us and make us right. And we have to allow the word to, to strip us bare. But even, even more scary is in this text, there's this word exposed. It says it leaves us naked and exposed. And this word exposed is, is literally the word in Greek, tracholidzo, uh, which if you have any medical back, background, you probably know trachea, that's, that's throat or neck, Right. And, and what this word specifically means, it just says exposed in the English, which is fair enough, but literally it's talking about exposing the neck of a victim uh, before executing it. Th- that's what the word means. Or you could think about uh, a sacrifice, right? I have a picture here of a lamb about to be sacrificed. Um, so a, bull, a bull's neck would be pulled back or a ram's neck would be pulled back and exposed before uh, it was killed and sacrificed. And this verse is saying that that's what God's word does to us. God's word uh, cuts to our hearts and our intentions. This, this picture upset the first service too. Um, you see these weird looks on people's faces. But, but that's what God's word would, should do. It, it should make us feel exposed. And even the sense of judgment it says all are naked and exposed. And the neck pulled back to the eyes of him to whom we must give account again this idea that we must fear that, that it 's not right for us to never be afraid. we should fear what 's proper to be afraid. Jesus says, "Fear those that can fear the one that can kill the soul don 't worry about the ones that can cure, kill your body right We should be afraid. we should have a healthy fear. we should uh, be scared of this judgment but but the beautiful thing of the gospel and the beautiful thing that Hebrews again and again paints for us is that Jesus is that sacrifice. He is the one that exposed his neck for us. He is the one that was stripped for us. He is the one that took death in our place. So, so we must go through this experience of feeling utterly naked and feeling like nothing that we can do is enough and once we've gone through that, then we can see how, how glorious is the sacrifice of Jesus. How awesome is a God that would give Himself for us. But once you've realized that nothing you do can cut it, th- then that puts you in the place of needing a Savior, of understanding the reality of your need for a Savior, and appreciating and loving the Savior that gave Himself for you. I want to close just by making a little observation about uh, Joshua. I've said this to you guys before, I think, in other sermons. But you know that Joshua and Jesus are the same name, right? Does everybody understand that? Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, it's Hebrew. It's like Yeshua. And we translate that Joshua in English, right? And then in the New Testament, in the first century, they lived in the Greek world, right? So a little Hebrew boy named Yeshua uh, in Greek everybody would have called him Jesus, okay? And and so we translate that uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew into English, and it goes through several more languages, and we get Jesus, right? And so the sound sound is totally different, but they're the same name. And so Moses brings the people out of slavery. The law uh, makes them a people, forms them as a house, but then uh, Joshua brings them into the promised land. And here in this text, in the Greek, it says, you know, Jesus wasn't able to give them that full rest. Literally, it's, it's talking about Joshua. It's talking about the Old Testament Jesus, that first Jesus, Joshua. He wasn't able to bring them completely into rest. He brought them into the promised land, but it wasn't the rest that we are aching for. It's not the rest that we are longing for, which again leaves us waiting, leaves us in this today, this today that we all live in, where we still need rest. And Jesus says in Matthew 11:27, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I'm going to read that again. Come to me all who labor and and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending us Jesus, the second Joshua, who brings us in to the ultimate promised land. the ultimate rest. Thank you for giving us a better rest, a rest for our souls. Father, I pray for those here who have previously thought that just showing up would put them in your good graces, or by serving, or by being a member, or by walking an aisle, or by getting baptized, by doing the right things, Lord, that they could somehow cover up the shame. But I pray that all of us today would realize that that nothing we do will cover it. But only you, only you bearing your neck for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave yourself for us. Pray that you'd help us to live in that rest, to live a full life, to take your yoke upon us, to follow you. Lord, help us to walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one final song. I want to remind you again, we have the party outside and want to welcome everybody to join us. If you want to talk about some of these issues again with me right after the service, I'd I'd love to pray with you or talk with you right after. Find in you, in your Son Jesus. Lord, help us to live in that work as we play and as we work. Help us to rest in you. We pray in Jesus.